Wow, that was a beautiful song. You just kind of want to sit and bathe in the presence of the Lord, singing like that. But do uh, let us pray and prepare our hearts for God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who is to be exalted. And you are the worthy one who opened the scroll, giving us life in yourself. And Lord, as we turn to your word and we speak about love, um, may you open our hearts, may you soften our hearts to what you want to say to us personally this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, Dr. Had Robinson, he's a former seminary teacher, and he tells a story about a young man who was going to go through an examination for ministry. And so local pastors gathered in the area and uh, just put him through the paces, and they covered everything from his call to ministry, his conversion to Jesus Christ, And then they got real down to business with the heavy doctrinal section, testing about what what he believed. So they questioned him about his views on scriptures, what he believed about Jesus Christ, what he believed about the Holy Spirit, about tongues and miracles, and then, of course, all about the end times. Are you pre-millennial, all-millennial, post-millennial, yada, yada, yada? Then after the chairman decided it was enough and the suffering was done, he asked for final questions from the group of pastors. And Robinson remembers one of the pastors standing up and said, I've got two final questions. Kind of made people nervous. You know, what's this white guy want? But he began. He says, young man, I got two questions. The first question is this. Do you love people? Do you love people? Now, Haddon Robinson remembers his own reactions to the questions. He says, you know, you know they say there are no stupid questions, but this one gets as close as you can get. Do you love people? I mean, what did you expect him to say? No, I hate people, and I love the money and the ministry. You know. If you knew Robinson, he's a funny guy. But as the years passed, had Robinson realized that it wasn't a dumb question at all. In fact, it's the most crucial question of all. Do you love people? And then his second question really followed the first question. He says, if you love people, how do you know? Another excellent question. So we might have warm feelings towards some in the church, but how do you know that you love people in your church? Now, these are not dumb questions. They may be the most crucial questions of all. Do you love people? So last Sunday, we launched the series on the fruit of the Spirit. And at the very top of the list is 
love, right? For the fruit of the Spirit, Paul begins, is love. And he rattle off some more, but he begins with love. You see, for Paul, love is at the center of the whole Christian life. After addressing both the strict law observers and also those who didn't think that the law was necessary at all, he says in Galatians 5, 13 to 15, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom, that's for the people who were free from Jewish traditions, the law, do not use your freedom from all that to indulge in the flesh. Rather, he says, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. You have a little feeling of the tension in this congregation, don't you? Just from those few words. Now, the priority of love is both in the Old and the New Testament. Now, Paul is speaking to a congregation who are mainly non-Jewish. They're Gentile, converts to Jesus Christ. And so Paul's been talking about they're not obligated to follow some of the Jewish traditions like circumcision. And so grown Gentile men are very grateful for this exemption. You guys are too serious this morning. But Paul is careful to make sure that the church understands that none of us are exempt from the call to love. Found deep in the Old Testament. In fact, the call to love is peppered throughout our Bibles. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. Did you know that some good things come out of Leviticus? Yes. Do everything in love, 1 Corinthians 16, 14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, Colossians 3, 14. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, Galatians 5, 6. You know, there are 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. And Bible scholar Scott McKnight says, love expresses the totality of God's will for us. Loving God and loving your neighbor is the entire law. Without love, the law, the word of God is empty. Everything we do and say and even the motives of our heart is to be filled with love. Now Paul is simply expressing the teachings of Jesus. He's not speaking out alone. When the Pharisees asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, all the, prop, all the law, the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, there it is, right from the mouth of Jesus, quoting the Old Testament. Love then lies at the heart of the Christian faith. So it's no surprise then that when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, 
we begin with love. But what is love anyways? I mean, no one thinks that love is a bad idea, right? I haven't met anyone who says, well, love is a bad idea because everyone, you know, wants to be loved or loves the idea of love. But love is a great idea until you find out who attends your church. Love is a great idea until you find out your pastor of all people cheers for the wrong team. Yes. Love is a great idea until you find out what political party your congregational members voted for. Ooh. Love is a great idea until your kids become teenagers. Sorry about that. Or lose their minds. Love is a great idea until you look, find out who took your seat in church because your name's on it. Love is a great idea until someone hurts your feelings. Love is always a great idea until you discover there are some people who are hard to love. Right? You see, the whole reason why Paul writes in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit is because the Galatian church is a fellowship of different people with different backgrounds. And no church is any different. Some had strict Jewish backgrounds who infiltrated their church. Most did not. Most were Romans, Gentiles. Some of them were slaves. They were merchants who used to worship pagan gods. Complete opposite from the Jewish background. Then you throw them together. Get along. Others were former prostitutes, perhaps, or migrant workers. And now they must sit across the table, as we're going to do this morning, this afternoon, across the table from law-observant Jews, sing with them, fellowship with them, and eat with them. Love is absolutely crucial because God's church is like a mixed salad. You might be tempted to pick out the onions and the broccoli, am I right? But they're all a part of the salad. Too often we think love is only possible when people are lovable and the conditions are right. That's the ideal. But according to Paul, it's the other way around. Because we are different from each other and the conditions are difficult, therefore, we need help. We need the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of our own selfish desires, right? The whole point of this is you need fruit, the fruit of love that comes from the Spirit, right? That was all the message last Sunday. So what is biblical love? Now you won't understand the definition of biblical love by looking up the Webster's Dictionary or going to Google. So I asked Google a question here the other day. And I asked Google, are you in love? Have you done that before? Don't don't do that now. But trust me, it will give you the same answer. So this is what Google said to me. 
Great question. I am an AI, artificial intelligence, so I don't quite have feelings the way you do. Do you think you can help me understand what it's like to feel something? That's what Google told me. So to Google, love is a feeling, right? That wasn't a very fancy definition, but that's what you get out of it, right? Love is a feeling. The dictionary actually says something very similar. You look up Webster's, it says this, love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Do you get the drift? Google and dictionaries reflect the attitude of our culture. Emotions and affections are what our culture thinks love is. Love is an emotional experience by pleasure and by satisfaction. You know, brain researchers constantly point to dopamine, a neurochemical release that gives us the sense of pleasure. And so they tell us that orgasm, satisfaction, relationship, the taste of chocolate, and the stupor of alcohol are actually on the same spectrum of neurochemical experience. And so most people's view of love is this emotional experience, which we mean is something that gives them a dopamine rush. And so the reason I think we struggle to love is because our hearts are wrapped around the wrong idea of love. We say, well, if I feel nothing for that person across the way, then nothing there. We won't go there. Right? See the problem? We wait for feelings. In a novel called Captain Corelli's Mandolin, written in 1994, in that story there is an old man by the name of Dr. Ianus, and he's speaking to his daughter. He's speaking to his daughter about his love for his late wife. And he says to her, he says, you know, that at first love, it erupts like a volcano, but then it subsides. And when it subsides, he continues, you have to make a decision. Do you want real love or just being in love? He continues. He gives this definition of true marital love. He says, love, a real love, is what is left over when being in love has burned away. He says, your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found we were one tree and not two. That's pretty good. I think it's heading in the right direction, closer to a biblical understanding of love. It isn't as though feelings and emotions are not part of it. So don't misunderstand what the Bible is saying. But as we say, as he says, the volcano subsides, but it's the underground growth of roots together that sustain their marriage. And if our culture's view of love is lacking, we need to look to this more biblical understanding of love that is more deeply rooted. So love in the Bible 
is defined by observing how God loved Israel, Jesus, and the church, in fact, all of creation. Love is not so much defined as it is shown to us in the Bible. If we want to understand how to love, we need to observe how God loved and still loves. So in the story of the Bible, we find several expressions of God's love. So love expression number one. What we find is God's unwavering commitment. In the greatest story of the Bible, God made a covenant with Abraham, found in Genesis 12 and 15. And God's love is expressed through this unwavering commitment to Abraham that through his descendants, God would bless all people. This unwavering commitment is what drives the story of the Bible forward. And this commitment is further expressed in his promise to King David. And although David was a man after his own heart, Abraham's descendants, as you know, Becoming the nation of Israel will incredibly difficult to love. And you know the story of the Bible that God was grieved by his own people and the rebellion. But God was committed to them. He was committed to this promise, a covenant commitment. And he repeated this. And it was repeated by the prophets that one day he would send an anointed one, a king who we now know is Jesus Christ. So when you look at God's expression of love, love is far more than a feeling or emotion, but it's about a commitment, this unwavering commitment to love. So it doesn't deny feelings, but it reorders our feelings and our emotions. God was long-suffering. True love is often very hard. It's hard work sometimes. I mean, the media doesn't tell you this. The dictionary doesn't tell you this. But love is faithful. Love is unwavering commitment to one another in the body of Christ, even when they are different from you and sometimes downright annoying. It's a test of our love. God expresses love through his commitment to Abraham, to Jesus, and the church. And we too must have this unwavering, faithful love through our commitment to one another. Love expression number two. God made a commitment to be with us. God's commitment to us was not done through just words, but through an expression of being with his people. In his covenant commitment to Israel, he said to them, I will walk among them and be your God, and I and you will be my people, Leviticus 26.12. In Genesis 15, God expressed this commitment to be with his people to be with Abraham and to guide him through a ceremony that looks a little bit bizarre, but it was known to Abraham's world. And so in the context of this ceremony, um, God promised Abraham that he would give his descendants the land of Canaan. 
But Abraham wondered aloud, well, how is this even possible, right? I mean, he didn't even have a kid yet, right? And God's talking about the land of Canaan. He can't even have a child. Lord, what's with this, right? And so God showed in this little ceremony that he was going to be with them. And so God instructed Abraham to bring a variety of animals, a heifer, uh, a goat, and a ram, and he instructed him to slice them in two, right? So he had to do, be a butcher, cut these animals in two, line them up, one side on, the, on each side. And um, normally, when two parties make a legal agreement, they both walk through the center of these cut animals, right? So it was a ceremony. And basically, legally, they were pronouncing, you can do this to me if I'm not faithful to my commitment. Okay? But that night, only God passed through these cut animals in the form of a smoking pot. No, not that kind of pot. Not the kind of pot I was thinking about, but a smoking pot, okay? It was God's way of expressing to Abraham, I am with you no matter what. And only God went through the center. And so God was expressing his love for his people by promising to be with them in the thick and the thin. And so in the desert, you'll recall that he appeared to them in a pillar of fire. Then there was a portable tent in the tabernacle, and then the permanent tabernacle. It was the place where heaven and earth met, representing God's presence with his people. This was not some distant God out there. It was a God who chose to be with his people. But the greatest expression of God's commitment to be with us, of course, is found in the Incarnation. When Jesus was born, Matthew tells us that God made a promise to Isaiah long ago and is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so we sing about this and talk about this at Christmas time. Emmanuel, right? God is with us. Who has heard of a God coming in human flesh, even dying the death we deserved, even though Israel didn't you know, hold their side of the covenant? Like the animals cut in two, Jesus has led to the lamb like a slaughter for us. But God's love was unwavering so that we could be with him even when we rejected him. And so by dying for us, he cleared the way for us to be with him today and for all eternity. Then after the resurrection, Jesus said these words to his disciples. Go make disciples, but then he says, I will be with you. Always, until the end of the age. And then he made this promise, and then he fulfilled this promise by sending us his Holy Spirit. Biblical love, then, is about being present with God's people. Just as God loved us by being with us. It's far more than words. So we can't love people without being with people. The church is not a group of people who don't spend time together. Jesus loved the church by being with 
his people. There is no such thing as a mature and growing marriage, for example, where the husband and wife don't spend time being with each other. Being with each other as a church is like the soil where love is grown. This means we talk. This means we genuinely listen to one another. This means we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Love expression number three. God's commitment is for us. So another way of expressing God's love is not just with, but for. It simply means, I've got your back. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He gave up Jesus for us all. As we grow deep in our commitment to each other, being for others is much deeper. Revelations 21.17 says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Just as Christ died for us, we too ought to be advocates for each other. You know, this is, of course, is, you know, one of the main points of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Even though the church is a community of difference, we need to be there for each other. So in this parable, it's well known, so I don't need to explain it all, but of course you know there was a man who was hurt on the side of the road. And then you have a, par- a, a, a priest and a Levite who did not help, and uh, they were probably held back by religious rules, or maybe they were simply in a rush, they were too busy. Maybe they were too proud, they were too busy, maybe they were prejudiced, or maybe they were simply uncomfortable to be advocates for this wounded person, even though the need was right under their noses. So the question is, what about you? What about us? Are we advocates for one another? You know, when I was in grade 10, uh, grade 11, um, I broke my collarbone, and I had to wear a brace for some time. And I think that during the first week or so, I had a hard time cleaning my upper body very well because of discomfort and immobility. And to my surprise, my sister Ellen, who is one and a half years older than me, said she would help clean me up. Now, my sister has this fiery temperament, and she's known to our family as the bossy middle child sister, okay? But when she saw me at my worst, she stood up for me. Because cleaning your little brother's armpits is not glorious work. So this came as a shock to me in a sister I had tensions with once in a while. But she wanted to do it. Did you know that my opinion of my sister was transformed in a week when she did that? Right? She was an advocate for me. She was there for me. She had compassion on me. And I grew to love her even more. Maybe I just grew to love her, period. 
Just as God loves us by being an advocate for us in Jesus Christ, we too must be willing to cross the floor, so to speak, listen to the Holy Spirit, and be there for people in your church and beyond. Let's just not go to church. We have problems even doing that, sadly. Let's be the church for each other. Loving one another as God did is not something that happens naturally. We learn the essence of love by observing what God did. True love doesn't begin until we realize that we can't really love in the way God loves until we see that we are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me say that again. True love does not begin until we realize that we are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was the only faithful one. He was the only faithful Israelite who was unwavering in his commitment to love us, even while we were still yet sinners. And so we can't take this for granted. Granted, we ought to be completely stunned and humbled by his love and eternally grateful, turning our lives over to him and receiving his empowering grace every day. His love needs to stun us because it was so undeserving. But let's remember this. Jesus not only saved us, but he gave you and I the ability to love through the Spirit. Love really is the fruit of the Spirit. Right? It's all there. It's the fruit of God, of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. The kind of love that Jesus talks about, that the Bible talks about, is generated by the Spirit, not by self-will. So the Apostle John said it this way. And of course, he is the apostle of love. He wrote most about love than any other apostle. So this is what he says, 1 John 4, 9 to 12. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. There it is. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what brings the church together is the love of Jesus Christ and our common faith in Jesus. But now, now that we're gathered, 
We need to still learn to love. Love as Christ loved the church. Love is a great idea, but we need God's help to love as he loves. So it's the Lord's Supper this morning, and we're going to partake together. But why don't we just um, pause for a moment. The worship team is going to come back, and we're going to sing a song, and we're going to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. But um, I invite you, as you sing, pray within your heart, and seek the Lord. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's saying something very specific to you about your love life. Maybe it's about a family member. Maybe it's about a congregational member. Maybe it's about someone at work. I don't know, but God does. So let's prepare our hearts as we sing this song, and then we'll go right into communion. If you want to stand, please stand with us. Every stalk on earth 
from sky to sky. Oh, Lamb of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' seated. <laughs> 